Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, Associate Professor of History, Dr. Timothy P. Barnard from the National University of Singapore, explores the different roles that animals play in colonial society and how visual depictions reflect their symbolic value. Uh, several months ago, uh, Jillian approached me about uh, coming and speaking about uh, imagery, 19th century Singapore and such. And with my own <clears throat> interests in animals in colonial Singapore and uh, the features that are in a lot of the artworks here. In other words, the artworks here often uh, feature animals. I thought it would be a nice opportunity to explore some of that but also to discuss some of the impact or ways that imperialism impacted Singapore. This, after all, is the bicentennial year. And we had the bicentennial celebrations, or not celebrations, not the right word, <laughs> right word, commemorations. Uh, but it's been a very strange bicentennial year, I believe, because there's been very little discussion of the bicentennial itself for 200 years and of imperialism. Uh, the response seems to be bicentennial. Oh, by the way, we have 700 years of history. And uh, yes, I have no, nothing against that. And there's no problem, but this should be a unique opportunity to discuss and consider and think about the role of colonial rule and imperialism on impacting the society in which we live in. And we can do that in many ways here in the National Gallery and throughout Singapore by looking at images of the society so let's see how this works. This is one of the earliest images ever of colonial Singapore, if you, if you will. In many respects, it, it occurred within a week after colonial Singapore began. This is a sketch of the island. It's my favorite map, if you will, of the island. It's by a man named Daniel Ross, or he at least was the captain of the ship, so he gets the credit, of a survey. They, they went around Singapore Island and this is a sketch of what it looked like. It was, it was uh, submitted on the 7th of February, 1819. I know here it says 1864. That's simply uh, an addition that some, an archivist put there in, the, in Britain you know, some 40 years later. But it was sketched on, in uh, February, 1819. Now, one thing to notice here is the village of Singapore. So when Raffles landed on the empty island, <laughs> it was, of course, not an empty island. You did have a settlement here. There was uh, probably about 1,000 people. They worked on pepper and gambier plantations and such. Uh, of, of, of interest also is a watering place. That's probably uh, where the Stamford Stream came out. You could get some uh, water. And then you also have another village over here, probably uh, near where the Kalang River came out and such. But the point is, this is an early imperial image of Singapore. It shows how the British viewed the island, but it's from a perspective we often don't take. And it came from someone who was here, though. Let's go to a different image of Singapore. This was uh, created in 1903. It's in the collection here. Um, and after I go through this, maybe we should ask why it's in the collection here. Um, as you can see, it was uh, designed by uh, Woodville. 
who was a famous uh, lithographer at the time and uh, artist. And it is, as you can see here, it's from a book, but it's hard to see down here, but it's about, this is supposedly a depiction of the British entering Singapore in 1824 as they take control of the island, following uh, the signing of the treaties with the Sultan and the Timongong, the second series of treaties. And there's a description of that down here. But as you see in this fantastical painting, uh, the British theoretically entered Singapore on elephants, horseback, uh, wearing finery, with a whole mishmash of people of I don't know what ethnicity, uh, with I don't know what kind of religious, uh, most likely religious building in the background. My point is, this is a fantasy. Of course, it has no bearing on what anything in Singapore looked like, but it's what someone in 1903 imagined Singapore looked like in 1824. And they're conflating it and bringing in ideas of, <clears throat> excuse me, Indian Rajas and grand processions and things like that. Not John Crawford going down and signing a piece of paper or getting the Timongong and giving him some cash and walking out of the room and then ignoring him. But the, point is, the, the main point I'm trying to convey with this is we need to think about where these images of Singapore were created, who was the audience, and what were they uh, trying to, you know, what, what was influencing the artist's understanding of what they were trying to depict. This is uh, created at the height of empire, using images from India to depict Singapore, and it really has no reality in what Singapore looked like at the time, but it is one, an image of the British entering Singapore. Congratulations. So let's kind of pull back for a second and think about what I hope to accomplish here today. And that is to talk really about imperialism and how it is portrayed and the legacy of that in not only art. Now, because of my own interest in the environment and animals and such, uh, what I hope to do is use animals or, or depictions of animals to help us gain an entree into this topic. So let's take this picture, for example. This is by John Turnbull Thompson of Thompson Road. He was the surveyor, uh, the second surveyor of Singapore. He helped lay many of the important roads, built some of the important buildings in town. And Thompson Reservoir is a uh, probably a, a, an apt legacy of him, is you know an important artery in town, a, a nice thing that he helped construct. And uh, he also wrote a lot about colonial Singapore. He lived here for almost two decades. You know, he painted. He was, you know, had thing, not, not much to do when he got off work. <laughs> and this is a picture of the Padan. And what you see here is it looks very, I'm going to use the phrase British. In other words, you have people going around in their carriage. You have men wearing, you know, high hats and dressed quite nicely on a horse. Okay? You do have some locals, <laughs> uh, you know, hanging around. You've got St. Andrew's Church in the background. You've got someone kind of, I guess, exercising the horse in the background, too. But this is a painting that would look probably acceptable in Britain if you want to depict what Singapore looked like. Okay? But it is being painted by someone at least who lived here and had an idea of what the society looked like. 
but it also raises questions about the distance between the society and the painter and the images they're producing and then who's going to consume those images. So, for example, would someone in Britain really want to see a picture of real Singapore? I know that's subjective, this idea, but you know, they, they want to see an image that supports how they envision a society to look. And it looks like a nice British country or, or padang or a, a, a square in the middle of a town, a civilized town. And so Thompson is saying to the British public, Singapore is a civilized place. I help lay the roads. Things are good here. And so it, it is an acceptable image to convey that idea. But if we point, uh, one thing I want to point out is you look at these horses, they look very nice, they look very uh, noble. But uh, it, it, horses also play an important role in how the British perceive themselves in Singapore. But, oh, let me know this. And I'm going to go through tales and illustrations and photographs. Now, when we want to talk about animals and imperialism in Singapore, usually in the museums here, the first thing they bring up are the natural history drawings of Farquhar. Oh my God, we, we have special exhibits, we have special rooms for this. Books are published. Uh, by the way, there's a similar book, there's a, a, a very nice book, I own it, I recommend you on, it, on the Farquhar drawings. There's a similar book, the Raffles drawings, it's called Raffles Lost Ark, uh, of the natural history drawings that Raffles did and sent back to England, uh, and they pretty much look exactly the same. Raffles and Farquhar competed in many different ways, but one of them was a natural history collection. Now, when we think of natural history in Singapore, we think of the Raffles Museum, which was mainly a natural history museum uh, up until independence. Of course, here's a picture of it. You can kind of see the elephant skeleton and things like this. Uh, but the drawing of Southeast Asian wildlife was one of the main imperial ways of capturing what life was like in Southeast Asia right at the beginning of imperial rule. It was a way to capture the images of the wildlife, of what we are entering, you know, the, the world we are entering, the natural world we are entering, has a wide variety of unimaginable plants and animals. And so to convey it to the British, or uh, convey it back home, they did uh, paintings of it. Yes, they also collected them, shoved them in jars, dried them out, sent them home, but in the process, this would often lose color. You know, it's hard to determine size and things. So we have a lot of these drawings. And so we have things like various birds, such as the partridge. Here we have uh, basically a, a, a stingray. And as you can see here, this is the one from Farquhar. This is one, I prefer this one, it's from a uh, book on Indian zoology by Hardwick and Gray. Hardwick and Gray collected images and they, they sent uh, people to Singapore. Uh, it might be hard to see it here, but it says the, the uh, Latin name at the time for the animal, and then it's uh, Singapore underneath. The artist who was here in Singapore went down to the market, found these things, painted it, sent it back to India, sent on to uh, England, and now we get an idea of how wonderful the wildlife is in Singapore. 
And through this metaphorical capturing of the image and capturing of the animal, you're gaining control over the space. And so, similar images. This is Farquhar, this is Hardwick and Gray. Uh, from Farquhar, we have Gibbons, which of course don't appear in, uh, uh, they never naturally lived in Singapore, but we have Gibbons. We have slow lorises, which don't live in Singapore, uh, but we'll show them anyway because Farquhar is related to Singapore somehow and then somehow to Singapore and then we'll put them in the National Museum and we'll finish up. Okay. Now let's turn to other animals and get into the real idea of imperialism. One of the great 19th century artists of Southeast Asia was a man named Radin Saleh. Radin Saleh was an Arab painter who grew up in Java, and he uh, gained the attention of a Belgian artist who arranged for him to be sponsored to go to the Netherlands in the 1820s, 1830s, and he studied in the Netherlands. Uh, he studied basically uh, paintings in a very romantic style. Famously, during this period in the Netherlands, he one day went to a zoo, and at the zoo, he, there was a, or a circus, there was a lion, and the lion tamer allowed him kind of access, or I guess sit next to the cage, and he sketched lions. And so lions and tigers became very common motifs in many of his paintings. He became a very famous artist in the Netherlands in the mid-19th century. Uh, eventually uh, returned to Java. The National Gallery here has uh, many of his paintings. But he's known for this type of thing, the wounded lion. Now, of course, lions don't occur in Southeast Asia. I know we have one in our founding myth of Singapore uh, with uh, Sangnilu Utama and Singapura. But, sorry, lions don't appear here. <laughs> we do have tigers, though. And as you can see here, this is uh, the forest fire where you have tigers fighting buffalo. Uh, and the motifs of this often is, of course, the, the tiger is savage. The buffalo represents civilization because it was used for agricultural purposes and such. But you get the idea. Now, this, this is an Indonesian artist living in the Netherlands, painting in a European style for a European audience and about Java. But we have our own tigers and illustrations here in Singapore. This is probably one of the most famous images from uh, 19th century Singapore or uh, in a gallery. You often see this cited and published and such. And this is the tiger attacking a surveying party. To give you a little bit of a background on this painting, uh, it's done by a German artist named Heinrich Lutmann. Uh, apologize for the pronunciation if I'm off on that. And what it does is it depicts an 1835 attack on a surveying party led by George Coleman. George Coleman was the surveyor of Singapore before Thompson. He was the first one. And the story goes that uh, Coleman was laying uh, some of the uh, roads down uh, with an Indian work gang, convict gang, and about... <clears throat> six kilometers or you know, five, six kilometers out of town along Bukatima Road, the surveying party was attacked by a lion. And it created such a kerfuffle and so much chaos that uh, Coleman left behind his theodite, one of the, the main things you used to survey at the time, rushed back into town, 
came down to this area of town, told everyone, oh my God, we got attacked by a tiger. And everyone said, oh, that's impossible. I don't believe you. And so this painting depicts kind of the savagery that waits in the jungle of Singapore to attack a European party laying down civilization. A European leading other Asians out to literally pave the road to create the city, the port, the town of Singapore. That's the story. Well, let's go to the story a little bit more. It depicts Coleman in 1835. Well, the story, to pardon my French, is utter bullshit. First of all, the first tigers were found in Singapore or reported in Singapore in 1831. Everyone knows there were tigers in Singapore. Are you trying to tell me that in 1835, a well-respected, high government official came into town and said, I was attacked by a tiger, and everyone went, ah, get out of here. (laughs) It's absurd, okay? But that's the story that exists in an 1865 book by a man named John Cameron on Singapore and our tropical possessions. Cameron wrote the book. Lutman was famous for drawing animals. He learned to do a lot of this at, the, uh, um, at a, a famous zoo in Germany that was developing at the time, one of the earliest modern zoos. And he published a book in the 1850s of animal drawings around the world. But in the 1880s, he was asked to, uh, to also do additional drawings of ethnic groups and various things going on around the world uh, for one of these horrifically colonial imperial racist books, you know, where you almost measure heads and things uh, uh, to determine civilization. And this is a nice depiction of kind of civilization in Singapore. So this was most likely made sometime in the 1880s. Often when you look on the internet and things, when you look at images here for Singapore, it's always said to be 1865. The point is, it's a depiction of savagery attacking civilization under the leadership of the white man. Now, tigers were a very big deal in 19th century Singapore. As the town expanded out, as Singapore became increasingly deforested, because everything outside of this kind of city core center that stretched from basically Kampung Glam to Dobigat MRT to Chinatown, everything outside of that area was essentially a pepper or gambier plantation. Massive deforestation occurred, and that is what allowed the entry of tigers to Singapore. Tigers do not like to live in jungle because uh, uh, life is up in the canopy. There's nothing to eat. Tigers like disturbed forests. As Singapore became more and more civilized, as it grew plantations and moved out, you had disturbed forest. Tigers came in, began eating peers, uh, peers. <laughs> deers and pigs that lived on the edge of the forest and also humans that worked on the edge of the forest, usually poor Chinese agriculturalists. The thing is, tigers became a big issue that represented Singapore. Every story by the mid-19th century depicted how Singapore you go and one person a day dies. Cameron even wrote, a person a day dies in Singapore. Now, this is a town of about 50,000 people at the time, and let's just say 365 people a year die of tigers. Damn, <laughs> you know, that's, that's an incredible uh, death rate. 
It's not true. People did die. I'm not, you know, there's no denying that. There were tigers, but it became an exaggerated tale. And it became one in which in Britain and throughout Europe became associated with Singapore. Singapore was a place in which, in many respects, the white man had to fight off the Asian savage beast, okay? And tigers represented that. It was the front line of the push of civilization and imperialism. And so this is depicted in an illustration such as this, which may have occurred, and we're, I'm not even quite sure when it was created, but it was made at least three, four, or five decades after the supposed event. But it was based on this image of Singapore as a dangerous place filled with tigers that eat humans. And more importantly, attack white men, God forbid. And so when we look at the images of the 19th century in Singapore, particularly of animals, we have to take into consideration these layers. Singapore was an imperial port. Yes. A society that was expanding out into the island, deforesting that island. There were dangers. These dangers could be exaggerated, however. And they become exaggerated further and further as they get back to Europe. And then it enters into various illustrations, various depictions of the society that create the image of Singapore in a place like Britain. And so the savage beast is something that is standing in contrast to the civilizing nature of the British presence. And so this is what they're trying to depict. Now, this same civilizing presence also exists in things like horse racing. Now, with tigers, one of the interesting stories I always like to tell about tigers is one of the first organizations or clubs in Singapore was a thing called the Tiger Club, where young European men would gather. Uh, what they did was uh, to, to combat the presence of tigers, plantation owners would dig pits around their plantations to trap tigers. And when a tiger fell in, uh, these young Europeans would pay the uh, owners of the plantations to come and tell them, hey, there's a tiger in the pit. And then they basically had an hour or so to get out to that point. So like, let's say five kilometers out Bukatima Road, a tiger's in a pit. Hey, everybody, get, come on, let's go, let's go. So you go out there, and whoever shows up after an hour then gets to stand over the hole and shoot into the hole and kill the tiger. So the first person who arrived gets the first shot. The second person who arrived gets second shot. And then whoever was there after the first hour, once you go through everybody who gets a shot, if the tiger's still not dead, you repeat. You gotta remember you didn't have very powerful firearms at the time. Uh, this was sport. Uh, we may frown upon this, but they would kill the tiger, pull it out, the owner of the plantation got $50 or whatever the uh, reward was at the time. The person who uh, gave out the fatal shot was declared the great sportsman, and he was given the skin, and then the meat was sold in the market. After a few years, by the early 1840s, people, there weren't enough tigers to actually entertain these bloodthirsty Europeans who were symbolically keeping away the savage beast. So they wanted to uh, create a more British form of control over nature, so they created a racetrack. So uh, 
they, they went to the governor, Bonham, and said, can we create a racetrack? He said, yeah, use that swampy ground north of where the Indians live and where Racecourse Road is, and they created a racetrack. And that's where the racetrack was till the uh, 1920s, and then it moved out to Bukatima Road, and then, of course, as we well know, in the 90s, it moved up to Kranji. But the Tiger Club became the Singapore Sporting Club, and the Sporting Club required membership, and it was essentially white people and rich Asians. Now, British loved horse racing. It was in the national sport because they equated the skills required, the knowledge required to tame a horse, to race a horse, to create a fast horse, to their own national superiority. To tame a beast and direct it in a particular manner is a very British thing, they believed. So they loved to have the, ra the races at the racetrack. It became a very cultural thing for them. So when John Edmund Taylor visited in 1881, one of his things to do was to sketch what he saw there. And what you see here are rich Singaporeans. This is Chea Hong Lim of Hong Lim Square, of the opium dealer of 19th century Singapore, which is how he made his money, it made him a very rich man. And this is the Maharaja of Johor, Abu Bakar, who becomes eventually Sultan Abu Bakar of Johor. Okay? And this is a jockey, I think his name's Abrams, I forget his name off the top of my head. This is Abrams, a man who worked for Sultan, uh, the Maharaja of Johor. You also have over here a man looking at his horse. I particularly like the Banyak Jahat edition uh, down there, which means a, a very naughty or very evil, very bad uh, horse because it's being tamed or uh, broken to fit European images of how they want to portray Singapore. Another example is the menagerie race, a very popular 19th century practice in Singapore. What the hell is a menagerie race? <laughs> a menagerie race is you take a series of animals and you put them in the middle of a, you know, like a, a, a padang, a field, or whatever, and then you see who can get to the edge of the field the fastest. And then you're declared the winner. They like to usually have high military officials or government officials do it. Now, this is an illustration from the graphic, a London uh, newspaper, based on a Singaporean newspaper article from earlier in the year that described a menagerie race in Singapore. So realize they're taking a story from Singapore, and then someone in England is creating what they think it looked like. I also want to point out, in the menagerie race, they named the animals. So, for example, the monkey was named Darwin. The pig was the, uh, the pride of China. <laughs> the frog was Jean Crapeau. <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up, <laughs> according to the newspaper. Supposedly, when they uh, started the race, the pelican flew to a tree. Chaos reigned, and the goose won. Okay? And the frog came in second, uh, uh, according to the story. But the, uh, the point is, once again, we have the layers. Okay? If we go back and look at what you have is a visitor depicting horse racing in Singapore, or at least the track and the track culture, for a British audience to see and consume. Here, you have a story 
told here, or at least depicted in the English language newspapers, that makes its way to England, in which an illustrator in England says, that's kind of interesting, and he draws his imagination of what it looked like. Okay? This is all, I mean, who knows what the people, how they were dressed or what they look like, but this is how someone in 1881 England imagined they looked like. This also goes, you know, we go back to that original painting by Thompson. This is another painting by a man named Percy Carpenter, who was here in the 1850s, of a house. It, it's, I find it a little strange because it's, a, it's a, clearly a Danish-owned house. It could be, the who knows, the head of the Siemens Association or something like that. But... More importantly, what you have here is you have a servant who's uh, preparing a saddle to put on the horse. And then you've got goats and chickens and ducks and a dog just laying there and hanging out and things like this. But it's, it, it's a depiction of the society in which, first of all, you see very few Singaporeans, uh, locals, Asians, natives, whatever we want to call them. We have to remember, in a society in which there were anywhere during this period, anywhere between 50 and 100,000 residents, Europeans never made up more than 1,000 residents. Like any good imperial society, it took very few colonizers to run it. Uh, there was a report Thompson even wrote in one of his books that if a European ship visited, it would double, the, you know, uh, like a European a military ship would visit, it would double the no number of Europeans in town. And so what you often have in these pictures is an absence of locals. Now, I know there's a few here, but what you get in your mind's eye when you look at this is your eyes are drawn to the Europeans or the, you know, kind of the, the elites. Or if we go back to the, uh, this one, back to this one, yes, we have Asians, but these are like two of the wealthiest people in the entire society. I mean, literally... These were in the one percent. These are not the one percenters. These are the point one percenters of, of the society. So we have these depictions that are depicting what Singapore looked like, but it's from such a distance you don't see the society. So what did it look like on a horse in Singapore? This is where I love photographs because they help a lot in this regard. If we have, for example, this is what a taxi looked like in uh, 19th century Singapore. It's called a gari. And what you did was, of course, you got in the little cabin here. I would imagine, for me personally, it looked like it'd be very cramped. Um, and then, actually, this guy didn't drive it. This guy pulled it. They would kind of walk the, the gari around town. And, and so you, you rode it like a taxi, though. You paid a certain amount for however far you went. The other common animal, of course, you would see in Singapore would be a bullock. Uh, bullock ownership and kind of uh, supervision, if you will, of course, was rooted in the Indian community. You have places like Kadankurbao or Cattlepen, where a lot of the bullock uh, bullocks were kept, and then the drivers uh, lived, and they would go around town. I, I'm not so crazy about the idea of a Malay bullock cart, um, but the postcard. So you'd send this back to uh, England and things like this. And this is a picture, of course, of a man uh, tending his bullet. But let's also take this idea. We go from a painting to reality. So if we go, this is what horses look like, and this is what the town looks like. You know, notice there's no bullocks here. In reality, this is what the people in the town look like. 
This is another painting of a straight Chinese lady with her servants, clearly having come from the market by uh, a Dutch artist named Rapard, who traveled through the region. So, you know, uh, getting the chickens, although to be honest, this servant looks very uh, Javanese to me, or it looks very Indonesian, but hey, this is what uh, the markets look like in 19th century Singapore. The chickens, by the way, are kept in these baskets here. So you would go, you'd buy your chicken, you could have them kill it for you, or you just take it home and kill it yourself. But you can see they were a bit more lively than this. Now, based on this kind of idea, if we're going to take illustrations, see reality, think about the layers of it, one of the best ways to do that, I think, is with the idea of pets in Singapore. But before I can actually explain pets in Singapore, we need to go back to the colonial, uh, the, you know, the motherland, the, the metropole in this regard. We need to go back to England because pets were transforming 19th century England. As England became an industrialized nation, people were moving from a rural existence to an urban existence. And during this period, you had the development of the modern pet. In particular, the modern dog. The idea of a dog, like many of you may have, the idea of I have a terrier or a bulldog, these the subspecies. I have a terrier, a bulldog, a spaniel, a, a whatever, originates out of 19th century Victorian England. They were creating, literally, through eugenics, through breeding, animals that you could bring into your household animals that you then could keep as companions. Okay? A pet is an animal that you allow into your house, you give a name to, and you do not eat. Those are the three rules for a pet. Okay? This is what essentially occurred in 19th century England. Now, a pet originally referred to a lamb, someone you could coddle, or uh, uh, almost like a baby. As you bring, think of how people treat their dogs today. Um, you know, you bring your dog in, it's part of the family. People talk, oh, it's my baby. You know, things like that. People talk about a member of the family. Uh, this was all being created in 19th century England, Victorian England. And these dogs became symbols of your status. Your ability to care and nurture for someone who frankly contributes nothing to the household is a sign of wealth, okay, of prosperity. I am so wealthy, I can support this, sorry, dumb animal, <laughs> and it, it's no problem to me. Okay? Now, with that very brief <laughs> introduction to the history of pets, let's look at what's going on in Singapore. We go back to John Edmund Taylor, and during the same period when he was depicting the wealthy at the racetrack, he also painted these two illustrations. The one on the left is one of my favorites of his because of my own attachment to the Botanic Gardens here. Uh, but what you have there is uh, from uh, 1879, a lady going for a walk in the gardens, you know, very, very nicely reading a book while she's doing so. I guess that was the modern or the, the uh, Victorian era texting while walking. And, and she is with her dogs. She could be sketching, but. She, she's with her dogs in the Botanic Gardens here in Singapore. 
On the right, you see, I imagine this is uh, along the East Coast. I'm not quite sure where it is, but this is supposedly a depiction of Singapore. And you see a man who you can assume that might be his pet dog with him, and he's just kind of walking along the beach chatting with the local fishermen. And so what you have are British people bringing their dogs, bringing the culture of these pets to Singapore. The thing is, Singaporeans at the time didn't necessarily think of dogs as pets. Dogs were curs. They were uh, wild things on the streets that bothered you at night and, frankly, were often beaten to death by gangs in the streets. Why would you want a dog in your house? That's silly. Singaporeans had their own pets. For example, that is a photograph at the top of Eva the Tapir, who was a pet of Henry Ridley, the director of the Botanic Garden. Ridley kept the tapir in his house, which is now where the National Orchid, uh, you know, the gallery, the main thing within the National Orchid Garden, kept it in his house, Burkill Hall. He would walk to work where essentially the Botany Center is today, and Eva would accompany him. He had a little nest, or Eva, she had a little nest in his office, and then when he went home at night, she would walk with him back to his house. Ridley also had a pet python that he kept at the house, but that was to keep rats at bay, and you know they, he would eat the rats. On the bottom is uh, an illustration from a book named Anna, from a, a book by a woman named Anna Brassi, who traveled throughout uh, Asia in the 19th century. And one of the stories she tells is the Maharaja of Johor took a liking to her and invited her over to his palace in the newly constructed town of Johor Bottle. She went over to Johor Bottle, hung out with him for the day, and as she was leaving, he said, I want you to have a new pet. And she gave him a pet, or he gave her a pet. And she said, I don't have any idea what this thing is. It's not a crocodile. It's not an armadillo. I don't really know what this thing is. It was a pangolin. And so she kept this pangolin as a pet for the rest of the trip. This was also one of the most commonly common activities that Singaporeans took part in on the right side during the colonial era, visiting the monkeys at the Botanic Gardens. There used to be two troops of monkeys that roamed the Botanic Gardens, and people would go out there often around sunset and feed them. Uh, my mother-in-law, when I was mentioning the Botanic Gardens once, my mother-in-law, who is 80, once said, oh, are the monkeys still there? And I was like, oh, you haven't been there in a while, have you? Uh, they were all killed in the early 1970s by the government because they are a nuisance. And they are not civilized. Um, but as you can see here, this is a family visiting the Botanic Gardens, uh, I think it's in the 1930s, uh, and uh, enjoying their time with the monkeys, feeding the monkeys. It's what many people often, if you talk to the elderly in Singapore, they'll remember the monkeys in the 1930s, there was a survey done of pets in Singapore. What kind of pets do people have? Well, actually, the imperial ideal, the Victorian ideal of having a dog, had become the number one pet. Dogs were the number one pet in 1930s Singapore. The number two pet was not a cat, not fish, it was a monkey. And the number three most popular pet was a songbird. And so, and it said that uh, monkeys and birds were tied for second place. And so, 
when you what you have is this picture of a very imperial society that's mixing kind of British ideals of what a pet is with what a uh, a local society considered a pet. I'm going to have a monkey. I mean, come on. How many of you would have a monkey for a pet if that was allowed? Hey, you can't have a songbird, although that's not as popular as it is. So by the 1920s and 30s, as you can see here, this young lady is being extremely modern, extremely imperial, if I might say. But she goes to the Lee Brothers studio and has a photograph taken with her dog. And so that is how you depicted yourself as modern. You, you adapted and adopted the, the British pet, not the local pet. So when we do this, when we sit back and look at these types of images, when we look at what we're dealing with when we go to a place like the National Gallery, or even the National Museum, we need to think about the layers that exist between us and the creator of that image. And not just that, but the layers between the creator of that image and then what they're depicting. When we go see those uh, pictures in 2019, we live in a thoroughly modern sample that is highly controlled and regulated. That is some 54 years independence, or you could even argue 60 years after 59. You have we live in a modern, independent nation-state that was controlled by the British for 150 years, essentially, in which there were tremendous amounts of influence of that British presence. And I don't mean if you have a dog, somehow you're an imperial lackey today, but there are influences to you know, how these things occur. But also we need to think about how these pictures were created in the sense of if we look at the early illustrations, they're often based on stories that simply weren't true. But they depict a savage society in need of civilization, in which the noble white man, with my eyes rolling in my head, if you can't see, the noble white man spreading out and, and controlling the, the landscape, building roads, building buildings, and developing that space. In these paintings, often, there's no Asians. Okay? There's often more animals, at least in the ones I chose, <laughs> there's more animals than Asians. And so the animals become metaphors for that taming process and that slow transformation into the imperial society. Okay? So the one thing I would like to, to emphasize with that is, when you look at the paintings here, and we have some uh, many wonderful paintings here in the gallery, is Think about not only your distance to the painter or the painting itself, but the distance that painter had to the actual subject. Because in that story, you often gain greater insight into the imperial process here in Singapore. Uh, I was quite intrigued by one of the paintings that depicted horses in the residential compound. And I don't think we ever have horses. Yeah. Okay. Do we have horses like that outside okay. the house? I can talk about that for sure. <laughs> the horses that ran at the racetrack that were owned by the elite Europeans, those came from Australia. They were imported. There was a horse auction once a week, every Friday, that was held at Raffles Place. Every Friday around 10, 11 o'clock, they held a, a horse auction at Raffles Place until the 1880s. And then it got so damn chaotic, the government shut it down. 
and they wanted to they wanted to transfer it to Canal Street where they had a lot of the stables. Now, if you're racing a horse at the racetrack or you got money like the Maharaja of Johor, you're buying one of these Australian horses. But uh, this horse, <laughs> most horses in the society came from Southeast Asia and more specifically Sumatra. Some came from Java. Some came, they all basically came to the Netherlands East Indies. The ones from Sumatra in comparison to the other Southeast Asian horses supposedly were better. And, and so the horses, these horse, as you can see here, okay, that's not a very big, I would call that a pony almost, and maybe that's a bad descriptor. But like, if you look at these horses, those are noble steeds that are gonna be, uh, and so part of that is not only depicting it for what the British expect a horse to look like, but also where the horse comes from. And just getting your racing horses for the elite sport from Australia, that says something also. And then the work horses came from Southeast Asia. Yes, I have two questions regarding the Leutemann um, engraving. And the first one is, um, I'm wondering if they thought that it wasn't important to record the deaths of Chinese so that's why people were surprised. So this was one of the first encounters between a Briton and a tiger. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and the second question was, I know I read that Leutemann was a uh, animal specialist, mm -hmm. but does that mean he didn't ever arrive here in Singapore? He's hearing this from a second hand or third I believe he did all this from a studio yeah, in Germany. That's yeah, what I, I believe. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Tigers, deaths, Singapore. <laughs> the earliest white sighting of a tiger was in 1831. A couple was in a buggy going out the very crude uh, Bugatima Road at the time, and they, a tiger ran across the path. They came back to town and went, holy shit, the tiger ran across the path. And that was even reported in the papers as early as 1831. Now, the issue of deaths in tigers is a very touchy issue. We will never know how many people tigers killed in Singapore because mainly the people, the people that were killed were the Chinese underclass. These were very, very put upon, uh, very poor workers who worked in these farms that were very culturally distant from any kind of British observation or control or understanding. And the basic story around that is there is a belief that, okay, let's say one of your workers died from a tiger attack you go down to the harbor and you say, hey, I need some more guys uh, for the plantation. And the worker goes, yeah, what happened to the, what happened to the guy before? He ran away. <laughs> um, you know, in other words, they, they didn't want it to get around that tigers were killing the workers. Number two, there was a lot of cultural clash there. There, there are stories of someone dying. The, the, his friends on the plantation uh, bury him. And then the European, the British come out and go, well, we need to see if this was a tiger attack, and they want to dig up the body. And we'll just say that's slightly offensive <laughs> uh, to cultural sensibilities, but they want to dig up the body, which means the next time you're not even going to tell them about this. So the number of Chinese deaths were probably grossly underreported. Now, there is a study by Tony Dempsey and several other scholars that came out three or four years ago 
that estimated about 1,000 people probably died total, but we'll never know. There's also an article by a guy named Miles Powell, who's at NTU, a very good one about how this underclass, this Chinese underclass, uh, really had no power to protest. You know, they, they were true victims of poverty and also the system to the point that, in a sense, they were uh, victims of the forest there, victims of these tigers as it spread out. So, in reality, we'll never really know how many people died. In other words, I, very few, if none, no European ever died of a tiger attack in Singapore. It was all, uh, I mean, I'm sure there were Indians and Malays who died, uh, but it was mostly Chinese agriculturalists because they were out there on that front line of the difference between a plantation and the forest right where the tigers would live. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, just to, I guess, uh, round off the line of tiger questioning, as it were. Uh, uh, what are your views on the supposed last tiger of Singapore, the one that supposedly you know interrupted a pool or snooker game at some oh, point, and that's it got shot to death? Story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. The 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 story is a, a wild tiger, the last wild tiger of Singapore, came into town and uh, uh, came into the Raffles Hotel and disrupted a pool, a billiard game of some kind, and then they had to go get it. Okay. The real story, <laughs> the way this became exaggerated was that tiger was a escaped tiger from a circus. There was a circus in the Kampung Glam area, or in the Bugis area, and uh, uh, the tiger escaped from the circus and did flee or went to the Raffles Hotel, and nobody knew. And it went under, if you go to the, uh, that area, you know, th where the... The, the buildings are kind of up on stilts, or they're above ground a bit, and there's a bit of air passage. Oh, colonial architecture cool it off. The tiger got underneath the bar, and nobody knew it was there. And, it, you know, it probably was there for a day or so. And then one of the boys, in other words, an adult Chinese man, uh, one of the boys uh, was kind of like cleaning up, or he goes, oh my, something's looking at me from underneath the building. And he went to the manager and said, oh, there's something looking at me underneath the building. And everyone kind of went, wow. And they went to the head of the Raffles School, Raffles Institution, who was the head of the Singapore Shooting Club, of course. And he came and took his gun and shot the tiger and killed it. It did not disrupt a billiard. Maybe someone was playing billiards and people went, holy shit, there's a tiger underneath here, and that might have disrupted it. <laughs> but essentially it was an escaped tiger from a circus uh, in town. There was also an escaped panther once from a circus that went around killing dogs and goats and stuff, and they eventually captured it on Fort Canning Hill in 1891. And after it was captured, it was put on display, and then the, nec the next night it was already back in the circus performing. And then the owner of the circus had to pay the owners of the goats and the dogs compensation. So a lot of those stories actually involve spectacles of animal behavior, like circuses or zoos. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia-Kasim and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>